Let's start tonight in what will ultimately be a new series, although I want to just say I'm not approaching this the way we approached the Gospel of John. I'm not approaching this the way we approached 1 John. For the past three and a half years, we have worked through two books of the Bible, John, 1 John, back to back, and each week we just went to the next verse. Some weeks we went to the next sentence within the same verse. We didn't have any pacing, no speed. Sometimes we did four sermons in four lessons in one chapter. Sometimes we did seven or eight lessons in one chapter. None of us have seemed to care. We keep coming back. I think we've actually gotten closer, stronger, enjoying ourselves more as a community. So I see no reason to swap it all up. I am in a theme, but we aren't doing the left to right, word to word, verse to verse, as much as we are gonna to try to tackle the body of a sermon, the longest public sermon Jesus ever preached. It's most famously called the Sermon on the Mount. It encompasses the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of Matthew. We will work those chapters. I may not always work in sequence. I may not always go in chronological order. We might jump around a little bit. And the reason for that is because the sermon seems to be piecemealed together in some respects from some things Jesus says in other gospels, for instance, the Lord's Prayer is in the Sermon on the Mount, but it also exists in another form in another gospel in which the disciples say, teach us to pray. And as if it's happening at its own moment, which kind of tells us that some of these things in the Sermon on the Mount might've been collections of things that Jesus says. It might be delivered all at one big long moment. It doesn't really matter. Point is, if I feel compelled to jump, we'll jump, but we'll try to cover all the bases in the Sermon on the Mount. The longest public discourse in Jesus' ministry, it contains the most famous statements of Jesus in regards to his principles of theology. The Sermon on the Mount gives us the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, as we said, gives us the Lord's Prayer. It gives us the Golden Rule. And it gives us a whole bunch of stuff in between. It's probably the most controversial sermon ever preached, simply because 2,000 years after its inception, we're still arguing over what it means. How much of it applies to us? What do we actually do with it? Do we take it literally word for word? Is some of it allegorical and some of it literal? Is it confined within the context of a first century audience? Does it actually work in the 21st century? Will it work in the 30th century? Is it timeless? Is this the kind of message that exists inside of a Roman empire with a Caesar and say an iron fist? Is it the kind of sermon that works, that, that isn't even necessary in a democracy or in capitalism or across the pond? What do we do with these statements of Jesus? Because some of them are difficult to wrestle with. Some of them are the kinds of things that we like to quote, read, but kind of ignore when it comes to the scriptures we quote. Because some of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount lay out an ethic, and I'll say this up front, I'll probably say it a hundred times in this series. Jesus lays out an ethic in the Sermon on the Mount that in many ways doesn't even resemble the Christianity a lot of us signed up for. We're going to come across some moments in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 where we'll swallow really hard when we read it. And we'll have to look at the text again and go, what do you think? And look at it again and go, am I living that? And I think that's its greatest contribution to Christianity is the fact that it lays out there in front of us something we have to wrestle with. We have to contend with. It's not only the longest discourse, but it also puts to silence the criticism that Jesus is out here living his theology, but he never really teaches his theology. You'll hear some people say, if you really want theology, and I've even said something along these lines before, if you really want the depth of theology, go to Paul, the Apostle Paul. He writes two-thirds of the New Testament. He'll give you your New Covenant theology. If you want to see a world in a crossover between an Old Covenant and New, we say go to Jesus. And Almost by default, when you say things like that, you're saying, if you really want to know what it means to be in the new covenant, go talk to Paul. If you want to know what it meant to live in Jesus' day, go talk to Jesus. And I don't want to relegate Jesus to 2,000 years old. He who was the same yesterday, today, and forever has something to say to us based on what he said yesterday. So I would say that not only is the statement wrong when we go, Jesus didn't teach theology, Paul did. No, Jesus' theology is the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the theology of God's love. It's the theology of what God acts like. And our title tonight is a question. What does God act like? And the reason I'm doing this way is because of a sermon we just preached 
on Friday night in Westminster, and it will air this Sunday. So for those who watch and follow along with what we post, this one will hit on a Wednesday. The sermon that will hit on a Sunday are absolutely complimentary questions because the, 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 the sermon that will hit this Sunday is a sermon titled, What Does God Look Like? And we work through the physicality of that. We work through the old covenant of that. And we land where you know we're going to land. What's God look like? Jesus. He walks like Jesus and he talks like Jesus and he acts like Jesus. God looks like Jesus. He looked like Jesus then. He looks like Jesus now. He shall ever look like Jesus. That opens up another question. So what does God act like? And you could say, well, he acts like Jesus. And you wouldn't be wrong. Of course, he acts like Jesus. Okay, then we ought to listen to Jesus. Right? If he acts like Jesus and he talks like Jesus and he moves like Jesus, then whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth, that's what God's saying. And that puts him at the top of the list as far as I'm concerned. All the other theologies and all the other doctrines are fine, dandy, great. We need to know them and we do. But if you want to know what God acts like and talks like and sounds like, and what would God preach if he came? You go, what if God came to the earth? What would he preach? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, God was here and he did preach. And that's what he said. So if anything, we ought to spend more time in the Sermon on the Mount. Because even though when we're in it, we don't understand it all. That's all right. You don't have to understand everything about God. Listen, a prerequisite to following God is not understanding everything about God. That's not the prerequisite to following God. It's wrestling with who he is and what he is. And so the Sermon on the Mount gives us such an opportunity to do that. Um, I know I haven't read any scripture yet. I know I haven't given you any screens yet. Sometimes you're going into something new and you're laying this stuff out. You got to build a good foundation. I'll warn you, we're not going to really get much into the Sermon on the Mount tonight as far as a block of scripture and break it down. We are going to use scripture, of course. We're going to set this up, but I'm, I'm just trying to get your minds to thinking in this direction because this is unlike a series we've done in this group before where you could just go read two or three chapters ahead and kind of get in the sequence and get in the context flow. There's really a lot that goes into getting us to this place. I was struck by this thought this afternoon. Jesus goes about in his earthly ministry Peter said he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. That's what he said in the book of Acts. Okay, what'd that look like? Well, from a practical standpoint, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus is always touching stuff. He touched the blind man. He touched a dead boy's casket. He touched the leper. He touched or was touched by the woman with the issue of blood. Every, you always see Jesus hugging, touching, making physical contact. And I, I started just kind of wrestling over and thinking about the import of that because there's something about human touch. You know, like I love to hold my wife's hand because we're together, but if we're in public and it's, it puts you with somebody in a way that you're not with the person on the other side of you. You know what I mean? It's such a simple little thing. It connects you visually, it connects you physically, and it connects you in some ways emotionally. I know that seems corny, but you, you know what I'm talking about. You know that it does. That's why we hug. See, these aren't sexual things. They're not romantic. They're not sensual. They're personal, but they're friendship. We hug, we hold hands, we touch one another's shoulder, we touch someone's arm, we, because we... we Thrive for human connection. I've always been so amazed that Jesus touches lepers because lepers were never touched by other humans because leprosy was skin-borne contact. You could literally, you could even get leprosy in the air. You didn't even want to be around lepers. So you, did, you certainly didn't make skin-to-skin -skin contact with a leper because you're, you're probably going to get leprosy. And you got Jesus just walking up to lepers and laying his hands on them. And, we're th and I know it's easy for us to go, yeah, but he knew he was going to heal them. That doesn't get get, out, get that out of your mind. That doesn't. The leper didn't know that. Just think about that. He's he's. Oh my gosh, is this guy actually going to touch me? And that always amazes me because if you're a leper, you haven't had anybody touch your skin in a long time. Can you imagine the feeling of another human being finally making contact with you? You go, wow, this guy has no fear, man, or he's crazy, <laughs> or he is who he says he is, and that's that's where we land. Jesus comes touching everything. Now why? Well, the Word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us. So whatever Jesus does is what his father does. Think about this. God had never got to touch his creation since the garden. God reached his hands down into the dirt and he pulled Adam up out of the ground and he fashioned him out of dust. And he reached up and he breathed into his nostrils and then he kind of just pushed him out into the earth. And his hands, he's, it's hands free. The closest he gets is putting his hand over Moses' face in Exodus 33. I'll let my glory pass you and you'll see my goodness. Skin t contact, man, to touch. Jesus comes along. He's God wrapped in flesh. He's touching everything. It's like God going, I want to see what that feels like. And that feels like, and that feels like, and that feels like, and that feels like. I want to touch I want to touch my children. I want to hold them. I want to hug them. I want to heal them. I want to love them. I want to hold their hand. I want to put my arm around their shoulder. You got the father hugging his son in the prodigal son story. That's the ultimate God hugging all of us. Rabble rousers has been slopping hogs. And we come home and God wraps his arms around us. Then Jesus dies. He resurrects. He ascends into heaven. Doesn't get to touch people anymore. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. I might be overselling this. I don't think so. We're going to get going. We're going to get going with this thought right here, though. I really think this is the crux of it. The Sermon on the Mount shows that God still wants to touch people. He just has to use us now. So the theology of the Sermon on the Mount deals with your neighbor. What's going on out there? Because for God, that's what really matters. So if God wraps in flesh, starts touching humanity, he leaves us with something like the great theology of the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes, if you'll live this sermon, you'll keep touching people. And that's what I would do if I were here, is I would keep loving people. I would keep touching people. So what does God act like? We're going to try to get to the bottom of this and answer in a very, very long introduction. This means we're going to have to speed up, which we've been down this road before, right? I want to start with one quote tonight before we get into the text from St. Augustine. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. This is, a pretty good, this is a pretty good way to get started tonight. So when we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, let's take a look at, let, let that fourth century theologian say something into us and say like, look, when you read this, if it doesn't go down the way you want it to and it's not palatable and it's not where you would land or that's not the way I would say it, Consider that quite possibly uh, it's, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ that you're enamored of, but your version of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you're enamored of. And I put my own self in there, not just you, but me. Because I'm having to wrestle with this sermon. I've never taught this sermon top to bottom. If I have, it's been so long I forgot it. I've been in ministry 20, almost 29 years and I've never really worked it top to bottom because there's always been moments I would get to in it in my own study where I would go, if I do a series, I got to teach that verse. And I don't want to. <laughs> or I don't know what to say. And so there's been a lot of moments where I wanted to do this or I might do the Beatitudes. Or I might do Golden Rule. I might do a little bit of the Lord's Prayer. There were just moments where I go, I don't know how to handle that. I'm finally at a place in my life that it's okay for me to say I don't know. And it's, I'm also at a place in my life where it's okay for me to wrestle with things and go, mm, I, can't, I can't settle on this, but I'm okay. It's not going to cost me my salvation. It's not going to cost me the anointing. It's not going to cost me ministry. But it might cost me a little piece of myself that I might believe in that probably needs to go. And so I kind of have embraced this study as a way of wrestling with some stuff in me. I hope you'll do the same thing, that you won't get to the end of a Tuesday night. And I, I don't think we should ever walk away and feel some condemnation, feel guilt, feel shame. When we look at these difficult moments, we should look at them through the grace and the lens of our Lord Jesus and say, I was challenged when I heard Jesus tonight in that text. And I'm challenged for what that means for my job and what that means for my family. I'm going to read a verse to you, a few verses from Matthew that are not in the Sermon on the Mount, all right? And I do that for a reason, because I want to show you that I believe in the ministries of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, we get the fullness of everything that was trying to be done in the Law and the Prophets, and then Jesus goes to the cross so that he can put the Holy Spirit inside of us. So I want to start in the strangest of places for a Sermon on the Mount text, and that's Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus was asked by a man, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says in Matthew 27, 27, 22, 37, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is an upward, from in here, upward commandment. Jesus is saying the very top thing that God wants you to do is him first. Love him. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The man didn't ask Jesus what's the top two. The man asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment in the law, but Jesus couldn't help himself. Because there's no such thing as loving the Lord your God with all your heart where you don't love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus couldn't... By the way, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself are not back-to-back in the Old Testament. It's not as if one's verse 2 and the next one's verse 3. They're in totally different spots. Jesus Frankenstein two verses together for this reason. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that could just be lip service if you don't love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor... That might be an indication that you're learning how to love God. This is a natural place for us to go coming out of 1 John. Because 1 John was all about receiving God's love so you could go love somebody else. So Jesus' response then is the greatest and the one like it. In other words, the greatest, greatest A and greatest B. Not number one, number two, but greatest A, greatest B. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, on these two Commandments hang every single thing written in the Law and the Prophets. So everything from Genesis to Malachi hinges on loving the Lord your God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay? The heartbeat of everything you see in the Bible then, because the Law and the Prophets is the Old Testament. Love, your, love the Lord, love your neighbor. That's, that's what we're supposed to get out of the Old Testament. We don't always. It's what we're supposed to get. Then you get into the New Covenant. And Jesus is going to up the ante as far as love is concerned. But I can drop that theme into the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is trying to get us into this mentality. And here's how I know that. Because in Matthew 5, and this is right near the top of our sermon, 517, Jesus says, and we'll get into this in a few weeks, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. On what, what are the two commandments upon which hang the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, don't think I came to destroy that. Destroy what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Don't think that I came to take that away. I didn't come to destroy it. I come to fulfill it. Fulfill what? This is where we always get sidetracked with this text. Because we go, oh, Jesus came to fulfill all of those demands of the law. We go, which ones? The dietary law? Sanitary law? Sexual purity law? No, on the two upon which hang the law and the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of it. I didn't come to change the rules. The rules didn't change. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Jesus goes, I didn't come to get rid of that. I didn't come to give you a new law. I come to fulfill that. I come to show you how to love the Father and how to love each other. So watch how I do it. I'm going to show you how God acts. And as you watch how Jesus does it, you're learning how God acts because that's the fulfillment of the law. Surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means from the law pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And we're going to get into what Jesus is talking about as we get to that spot on the Sermon on the Mount. But for tonight's purposes, Jesus is here to tell us in this sermon, pay attention because what I'm here to do is fulfill, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And in fulfilling it, he will build on it with this in John 13, 34. New commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So Jesus is going to give you super equipment. He's going to say, here's what the law demanded of you, and I'm going to give you the equipment to do it because I'm going to teach you how to love each other the way that you're loved. And that leads me to this thought. The reason then that the Sermon on the Mount is so important is that Jesus is going to show you how God would act to his neighbor. You want to know what it means to be human? Pay attention. I'm going to show you what dad would do, Jesus is saying, if he were here because he's here. I and the Father are one. And this is how we would respond in a world full of chaos and strife and heartache and pain. And so that, that gets us into a couple of thoughts. Love God above all others and love your neighbor as yourself. There, on that hangs the law and the prophets. The opposite of this would be idolatry and injustice. Think about it. If love the Lord your God above all others is the rule, 
What would be the opposite of loving the Lord your God above all others? It would mean you loved something else other than God. That's idolatry. That's the very definition of it. If you didn't love your neighbor as yourself, that would be the ultimate injustice to your neighbor. And so the transverse of loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself is idolatry and injustice. Please hear this. It's all the new covenant cares about. The Bible is full of replacing your idolatry and replacing your injustice with the one God and caring about your neighbor. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the message of Christianity. I want to say it again. Christianity is not about missing hell and going to heaven. Christianity is not about church or Bibles or giving. All of that stuff's fine, great, and good. You need it. Christianity, the faith. I don't even really like to call it Christianity sometimes because it's got such a terrible connotation because there's all kinds of people tacking all kinds of stupidity on the front of Christianity. And then we try to define Christianity through denominations and culture and race and politics and that's a left-wing Christian, that's a white Christian, that's a black Christian, that's a right-wing Christian, that's a conservative Christian, until it's all co-opted, till everyone's borrowed their piece of Jesus. And it seems to me that Jesus says, I come to fulfill this. There's one God and your neighbor is important. Figure it out and listen up because I'm going to give you some tips on how to do that. And that's what this sermon really tries to do. That leads us to John the Baptist. How does that lead? Go back. How does that lead to John the Baptist? Well, here's why. And this is to me where I messed this sermon up for a long time. This is full disclosure. Why I had a trouble landing in the right spot with the Sermon on the Mount is because I didn't make the proper correlation between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. So I'm going to try to remedy that tonight. And maybe it'll help you. All right. You may be miles down the road on this. So forgive me. But I'm going to try to get you to the place where I am in this journey because I think if we could get the John the Baptist thing down, we might get the Jesus thing down. And I think we think we've got the Jesus thing down, but we don't have the John the Baptist thing down, which means we probably don't have the Jesus thing down. You understand what I'm saying? Here's what I mean by that. John the Baptist came preaching a return to God. That's his message. Repent. Kingdom's at hand. He's not talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to Romans. He's talking straight up to his countrymen. And he tells them, come back to God. You've left. You've drifted. The axe is laid to the root of your tree. You're coming down. You, we, you're a, he, he goes, you're a brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. He goes, you think you're one thing, but you're really another. And he goes, you, you need to come back to God. John's really trying to get him to turn inward. He's trying to get him to turn to what matters. Put first things first. The problem with John is he's not the walking embodiment of grace and truth. That's Jesus. John 1 doesn't say... The the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by John and Jesus. No. Grace and truth came by Jesus. So John is essentially an old covenant prophet standing on the doorstep of a new covenant world. And he's yelling at an old covenant people for the thousandth time you've left God. You left God in Jeremiah's day. You left God in Isaiah's day. You left God in Ezekiel's day. You left God in Zechariah's day, etc., etc., etc. I'm no different, except for one important caveat. John arrives at the end to be the final trumpet in front of Jesus. He's the herald. He was born with it over his head. His own father sees an angel who comes into the temple. Zechariah is a priest and tells Zechariah, you and your wife are going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And he's going to be the herald and he's going to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the fathers back to the children. In fact, look at this passage from Luke 1, 16, 17. This is the angel talking to John's dad. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, capital H, he will go before him. The angel doesn't say Jesus because Zacharias wouldn't have known who that was. But he's going to go in front of the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is to turn us back inward, to turn us back to the things that matter because our eyes are off on all other things. This is a classic idolatry. And so to turn the people back to where they need to be and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make 
ready, a people prepared for the Lord. So John's message of repent and be baptized, repent, 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 is to prepare us for what Jesus is going to preach. The preparation for the Messiah is the message of John the Baptist because the preparation for what Jesus will preach is that we have to remove the idolatry. We have to go back to God. Why? What's the greatest commandment of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. What's, this, what's great 1B? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's John come preaching? Go back to God. What's Jesus come preaching? Neighbor. Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not turn to God, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. No. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of Turn to your neighbor, turn to your enemy, turn to your persecutor, turn to the nation, turn to the soldier. It's outward, outward. Why? Because John comes to bring Israel back inward to the one God. Love the Lord your God. Jesus comes, so you could think of it this way. John comes to preach repent. Jesus comes to preach receive. Repent, come back to God. And when I say Jesus comes to preach receive, don't fall into the classic trap of thinking I mean receive Jesus. I don't. So let's start over. John comes preaching repent, change your mind about God, come back, get rid of the other gods. Jesus comes preaching receive your neighbor as if they were yourself. Because that's how you show God you love him and that's how you show your neighbor you love God. Kind of ready for the Sermon on the Mount. Because whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth is meant to turn his audience towards the world and say, what would God do if he were here? Here's the amazing thing. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest public discourse. It's God preaching a sermon to humanity through human lips. And he doesn't get up and condemn the crowd to hell. And he doesn't talk to them about accepting Jesus in their heart. He doesn't get up to them and even spout old covenant theology or even new covenant theology. He just teaches them the way of God by loving their neighbor, by embracing the people around them. And so when we wrestle, what we're really wrestling with is how do we live this out? Here's what we're not wrestling with. We're not wrestling with how to stay saved. Never forget this. This is where we get tripped with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not saying, if you'll go do all of these things, this is how you become a believer. If you'll go do all these things, I'll let you into heaven. You don't do all these things. We've, we've inserted all kinds of things into it. What he's doing is saying, here's what daddy looks like. Here's what you should be loving like. This is what God acts like. Let's go repeat this on the earth. And it is more than a set of principles. It is a way of life. But don't lose focus that Jesus came full of grace and truth and that there's no condemnation to us in Christ. So the equipment we're being given is what to do to go out into this world with what we've been giving, what we've been given. All right, so let's compare these one more time and we're gonna make some historical statements about the sermon. John is here and we're talking John the Baptist, I'm just trying to get us in the right category. John the Baptist is here to deal with love God, AKA, Opposing idolatry. Jesus is here to deal with love your neighbor or injustice. This is why we see Jesus dealing with the others almost exclusively. His life is an example of how God acts. So you want to see what God came to do through Jesus? Just look at who Jesus hung out with. And they are a bunch of rebels and sinners and outsiders and often Gentiles. And they're the wrong group. And the people on the earth the religious leaders on the earth didn't like Jesus much for it because Jesus is showing us the mission by which and the reason by which he comes. So you can look at the life of Christ as an example to see how God acts. Now, I want to give you some thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount, and here's how I'd like to do this. Um, I could stand here and tell you what I think, and you're going to learn that over the next weeks and months, and, and you're going to learn where I am on the journey. And you also hopefully know that I don't think that's the final resting place for where we should be on the sermon. And I don't even know that I'm where I'll be in three months on this message. I'll just say that now so it's on the record. I think when we get done with this, I might look back and go, man, I wish I had known three, four, five months ago what I know now. Listen to some of the stuff I said then. I didn't know anything. I'm okay with that. Used to wasn't okay with that. Had a lot of pride, had to be right. I'm done being right. I'm just on a journey. 
I love seeing Jesus. I'm willing to say I'm wrong. I'm willing to say I don't know. I'm not willing to not wrestle anymore. Because you don't learn anything. You don't jump on the mat with Jesus and say, I don't know, I don't like what you just said right there. To be real honest with you, Jesus, I'm not sure that'll work today. And that's okay. You go, oh, okay, well, let's go live that out and see what happens. Um, I'm not alone. I'm going to show you that. Because all throughout church history, we've struggled with this sermon. And we have so many different landing spots for what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. So what I'd like to do is take, oh, what I got, one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, I didn't count them up until just now. I have six different viewpoints, and I realize that there are probably 60 different viewpoints. Um, these are those I've encountered or those I've even worked through. And I'll be honest, all six of these viewpoints, there's really seven. I'm saving my seventh for the end, so there's six others, um, have elements that I've believed, elements I'm not sure I still don't believe, elements I can't stand, elements I think are completely misinformed, um, elements that might define you perfectly, elements you might say, I've never heard of that. I can't imagine anybody ever thought that about the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm here to tell you that I didn't make them up. These are the real deal and people adhere to this philosophy. And I want you to, the reason I do stuff like this is I think one of the shames that we have a lot of times in Bible college seminary is that we hear an opinion that is the opinion of the founder of the Bible college or the seminary that has no room for opposing viewpoints lest you be led astray because you're all so intellectually inferior that you're not possibly able. This is the thought process, I think. You, you can't handle hearing alternate points of view because what if you believe them? Then we'd have to sit in here and deal with all that stuff. So we're just going to kick out all that false doctrine, just teach you the one true way. So you get to the end of a course and you know exactly what brother or sister so-and-so or that board of educational directors thought, but you didn't know there was another way to think. And I meet seminarians who you'll go, oh, did you know this was in the 5th century and this was in the 7th century? What? I didn't even know that existed. You go, we got to listen to what the church has been doing because it's a body of Christ that brings us information. It doesn't mean they're right, but it certainly doesn't mean they're wrong. Let's start in, eh, what, 12th century? Thomas Aquinas, Middle Ages. This is Thomas Aquinas' thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount. This was the, most, this was the most influential Catholic doctrine that would end up happening. It came out of the, what we call the Middle Ages of the church. He divided Jesus' teachings into, and I probably should have count, capitalized precepts and counsels because you're using them as a proper noun. He divided Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount into precepts and counsels. And the precepts encompasses things like the Ten Commandments, the things that were already ironclad in the law. He goes, these are precepts. There's no way around them. Right? Then there's also counsels. They're the things that Jesus teaches, what he might call lesser teachings. Things like anger and lust, of which, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount is full of, of sort of counsels teaching, like dealing with lying and dealing with anger and dealing with retribution and dealing with jealousy. These sort of lesser. Um, he believed that the precepts were mandatory, but the counsels should be attempted. Through effort, and what I mean, that's probably poor wording, but basically that the counsels are, they're sins, but they're not sins that's going to do you in. And so you should avoid them because the world would be a better place if you avoided lying, or the world would be a better place if you avoided anger, or the world would be a better place if you avoided lust, but that none of them are unforgivable. The Catholic Church liked that so much that Catholicism adopted this into the category of mortal sins and venial sins. In other words, sins that will kill you, that you're going to go to hell for, forget it, don't ask forgiveness. And then venial sins are sins that can be forgiven. They aren't going to do you in. And so you can find a whole collection of them in the Sermon on the Mount on one side of the wager and a whole collection in the Sermon on the Mount on the other side of the wager. Now you might say, well, I'm not Catholic, so what's that matter to me? But where has this influenced how you think about things like the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe it's influenced it this way. You get into the Sermon on the Mount and you hear Jesus talk about adultery and you go, man, that one, that, there's no excuse for that. And then you hear Jesus talk about not fighting back and you go, yeah, but sometimes. <laughs> See what I mean? Okay, so even though you've looked at it and went, well, I'm not Catholic, I don't need to. Mm. Think about how you've categorized the things within the Sermon on the Mount. That's the point of showing you these things, is that we're not always that far off from people's thinking that we totally disagree with, or that we think we disagree with, or that we automatically disagree with, and then we go, yeah, I don't know, yeah, 
you got a point there. I mean, I could see how they landed on that. And so that's one way of dealing with this. And then came Martin Luther, oh, about 400 years later, at what becomes the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther saw the Sermon on the Mount as Christians living under dual citizenship. Christians are both citizens of the kingdoms of this world, whatever nation flag they fly under, and they're also a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. What applies to the individual does not by default apply to the state because states aren't Christians. This was a Martin Luther argument. Germany is not a Christian. Russia is not a Christian. England, Great Britain is not a Christian. You are a believer. So it's important for you to live this out. But you have a dual citizenship. You have two citizen cards. One's your kingdom card and one's your German card or your American card or your British card or your Japanese card. And therefore, the Christian can participate in activities for the state as long as on the inside, they actually still love people. And that allowed you to go to war if the, you believed that the state had a just cause for fighting, even if Jesus told you individually to sheathe your sword. And you could go, I hold two citizenships. I have to honor this of my nation. I also have to honor this of my God. This one's pretty attractive. Pretty attractive because it allows you to keep your Jesus in here when you need him in here. But then you don't have to keep him out here when it's necessary to do other things. And how many of you realize that while this has great utility, if you're needing to fit into the kingdoms of the world, it's also why 80% of Nazi Germany was Christian. Because you're a kingdom of two nations. So what the one on the earth does isn't necessarily what the one in heaven does. And we just need to know the difference. So while it's got some attraction, and while we've probably lived a little bit of this out, probably, I don't go in a church where I don't experience Martin Luther's version. Why? Because he's the great Protestant reformer. Our landing spot on the Sermon on the Mount is, yeah, that stuff's well and good in your hearts, how you ought to treat your neighbor, but some things override it in this dimension. They won't override it in eternity, but they override it in this dimension because you're citizens of this world. We can tip our cap to Martin Luther. Here's another, and this is just a, just a quick one. I don't stay here too long. The Quakers also, you could throw in the Anabaptists in this too. We're, getting, we're shoving really up close to the revolutionary era in the United States. This is the, the body of thousands of people who migrate, immigrated from Europe, many of them to North America, the Quakers and the Anabaptists. The Quakers believed in the application of the Sermon on the Mount as literally as possible. And that led the Quakers to no armies, no police force, no public displays of respect, or reverence, and the Quakers got absolutely demolished in Europe and ended up on boats to come across to the New World and ended up implementing this um, in a Puritan fashion. And what happens when you take the Sermon on the Mount literally in a Puritan fashion is you can cut off hands and pluck out eyeballs and you can burn witches at the stake. So literalism has some obvious problems. Right? Okay. I'm just, I'm just walking you through the way that we work this out as believers. Somewhere around the early 19th century, dispensationalism became the, one of the hot ways of reading the Bible. And the dispensational eschatology was birthed somewhere around 1835. And by the time you turn the century in the 20th century, the Schofield Bible gets published. Schofield writes in his notes of the Sermon on the Mount, this sermon is pure law and it's the morals a Christian ought to aspire to. He felt safe doing that because he was entrenched in a dispensationalist idea of the Bible, which basically says that the Sermon on the Mount is at the very end of the law code and thus is not applicable to a new covenant Christian because it's not given inside of your covenant. And so the dispensationalists could work their way around the Sermon on the Mount by saying Jesus is talking to people at the end of one era, not the people in a new era. And therefore, because you are no longer under the dispensation of law, that Sermon on the Mount is as applicable to you as the book of Leviticus. And therefore, what you need is what happens in a resurrected world because a resurrected Jesus kicks off what the dispensationalists will call the dispensational of grace, dispensation of grace that happens after Christ. And therefore, the Sermon on the Mount, while full of great principle, just like the law, just holy and good, doesn't necessarily hold much weight for you morally. And then that allows us to kind of pick and choose where we're going to go with that. Right? Dispensationalism categorizes how God deals with man across time.
Here's another one. The Grace Message or the Grace Movement. I don't really like either of those titles. I put them up there anyway. Grace Message, I know this one really, really well um, because I was, I mean, I'm, I've been in it for a while and in some circles was a leading voice. And I developed this paragraph pretty hardcore. Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching the law to show that it can't be done, not to show that it should be done. He hopes his audience will try to do it and then they'll exhaust themselves and turn to grace. This theory postulates that Jesus actually makes the law even harder in the Sermon on the Mount to show you that you aren't as good at keeping it as you thought, a sort of nice try, but you still can't do it. <laughs> Heard anything resembling that? That's the grace message version of the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> um, I, I could write that paragraph because I've probably written something very similar to that in previous books that would have even said something like the Sermon on the Mount um, is Jesus in the end of an old covenant trying to show them they weren't very good at keeping the law. He actually ups the ante. It's even harder on the Sermon on the Mount than it was in Leviticus and in Exodus. He takes it to the next level so that whatever was left hanging on of your own personal ability to be righteous will just die on the vine at the Sermon on the Mount and hopefully you'll be so exhausted that you'll turn to a resurrected Jesus as your Savior. And by saying it that way, we thought we were putting the spotlight on grace and on the resurrection while not realizing that we were having Jesus locked inside of a space in which he is not trying to show people how God lives. He's trying to show people how they could never live. And then the Sermon on the Mount really doesn't have any hope for the poor in spirit or the meek or the mournful or the hungry. Why would it? You can't do this anyway. And so sometimes I think in an attempt to be liberating, we actually remove the teeth from the people that need it the most. One of the saddest commentaries on liberation is from successful people. If you want to hear true messages of liberation, listen to people who have a boot on their neck and have been set free. A lot of us are talking about liberty and we've never been enslaved to anything other than having to go to church three times a week. You know what I mean? The Sermon on the Mount is for everybody else. But the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' argument of what the world looks like to the eyes of God and how God would fix it. Here's how I would fix it. Here's another one. German philosopher, mid-20th century. I probably should have put this one next to last because the grace message and movement is still going. I put this in because this is so fascinating to me. Albert Schweitzer, one of the great German minds. He preached, taught, and wrote that the Sermon on the Mount is the interim demands for a world on the edge of apocalypse. Jesus is instituting a sort of martial law because he's, Jesus is teaching that the world's about to come to an end. And since the world's about to come to an end, here's a set of codes that we ought to live by in the meantime. Paul does a version of this to the Corinthians when he goes, if you're not married, don't get married. We upon whom the end of the world has come. There's no reason for you to bog yourself down in a relationship. Paul does teach that because Paul is looking at the end of an era. Jesus institutes a kind of a martial law. Since the world didn't actually end, we shouldn't take the instructions as applicable across time because they only should have applied if the world were going to end. There's a big problem with this theory, and it's exactly what ended Albert Schweitzer's relationship with the Lord because this theory led Schweitzer to stop taking Jesus serious also because he went, well, if Jesus thought he was at the end of the world and he was wrong, why would you trust Jesus? By the way, I got to say this. Jesus wasn't wrong. He was at the end. We were wrong about what he meant by the end. You're always at the end of something. Jesus was telling the nation of Israel that they were at the end of the temple system. And he said, it's about to come down. Your house is about to be left to you desolate. If we read anything else into that, it's because we weren't reading. We were listening to other people tell us what he said. Jesus was not saying the world's going to come to an end, but... We don't always view it through that lens. And so when you end up with an apocalyptic vision, then the Sermon on the Mount can take on apocalyptic meaning and therefore you don't really have to pay that much attention to it. All right. Let me try to land with where I am on this journey, all right? The Sermon on the Mount is not a blueprint. It's to show you how God acts. It's to show you what God is really like. 
you will find it impossible to live up to. Of course. Why? Because you're not God. Why is this so hard for us? You're never going to be able to live up to this. This is what God would do if he were here. He was here. You you wouldn't be offended if I said to you, hey, you're not going to do as well as Jesus tomorrow. You would say, yeah, I mean, I mean, no brainer. That took, that was a real spirit of prophecy. Of course, I'm not going to do as well as Jesus tomorrow. So why, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, would you look at it as an instruction which Jesus says, jump up to this rung until you realize you can't jump and then quit trying to jump and I'll save you by grace. And then you can just ignore the Sermon on the Mount because you didn't need to do it anyway. It was really just to humiliate you in your effort so that you would come and let me do it through you. No, it's not a blueprint for how to live. It's instructions for what God would do. How would God treat the poor? How would God treat his enemy? How would God treat his persecutor? How would God treat his bride? Like when you get to the divorce passage, one of the reasons no one teaches the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus goes, don't let a divorced woman marry. If she remarries, you make her commit adultery. A lot of us just close the Bible right there and go, well, I'm not going to teach this because half my church got divorced. How, what am I going to get up and say about this? You're going to send people under condemnation until you start to realize that it's God saying to you, I don't leave you. You and I don't divorce. Because that would force you into adultery. And you go, oh, wait a minute. I should probably wrestle with divorce, not use it as a back door in case things get wrong, things get heated. He's not asking me to base my righteousness on whether or not I get divorced. He's telling me, I'm not going to divorce you. I'm not going to leave you. And when you can start to see that, yes, it's impossible. Of course you're going to find it impossible, but we have grace. Grace that says, neither do I condemn thee. Grace that says, therefore, now there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And because we're in Christ Jesus, we're not condemned beneath the weight of the Sermon on the Mount. We are propelled upward with the Sermon on the Mount. We look up and go, this is how God would treat my enemy. This is how God would treat my persecutor. This is how God handles lying and anger and adultery and envy and jealousy. I'm not supposed to read these and wallow in the carpet and fall apart. I'm supposed to read these and wrestle with how I'm treating my neighbor. And maybe if I realize that I love the Lord my God and I love my neighbor as myself, I'll never get over the Sermon on the Mount. I'll be bothered by it forever because it's really what God would do if he walked the earth. And I don't have to make excuses. I don't have to trade in my citizenship card and figure out which ones apply and which one don't. God who is timeless and never changes never stopped loving unlovable people. He never stopped caring for the poor. He never, he never became unconcerned with the, with the marginalized and the minority and those who have been ignored. In fact, it's all he talks about in that sermon because maybe, just maybe, it's what he wants his church thinking about. Maybe it's what he wants his church shouting about and praying about and spending money on and spending time with. And when you get to the seven churches in Asia, it's obvious they didn't read the Sermon on the Mount. At least not all of them. I mean, we just posted Laodicea last week, right? If you go back and watch the Laodicea message we did in our monthly meeting and listen to Laodicea, we're rich, we're increased with goods, we have need of nothing. And Jesus is standing in the midst and goes, but don't you realize that you're actually poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked? Open the door. You're the kind of person I like to eat with. I got some stuff for you. I've been looking for people like you forever. Church, this is who we're supposed to be opening the door for. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us this. It's not an introduction to legalism. It's an introduction to the constant wrestling with how we move through the world. Why love our enemies? Why turn the other cheek? Why avoid divorce? Why not hold grudges? Why not lie? Why not lust? Every one of these are in the Sermon on the Mount. I just picked a few. Just a few. Sermon on the Mount's loaded. It's like a machine gun of stuff that just keeps coming at you. It's rough. There are moments in the Sermon on the Mount where I have to just close it and go, I'm going to go read some identity stuff by Paul. <laughs> and, and Jesus just keeps firing it at you. Why not? Why not do all these? It's because these instructions show us how God acts. It shows us God's actions with the other cheek. God's actions in our heavenly marriage. Does God hold a grudge? Does God lie? Does God lust? You go, well, of course he doesn't. And that's the point of Jesus is to say, There's a moment in the Sermon on the Mount where he goes, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you're going to get to that one and think, oh boy, that's a 
That's a tall task. And I know we, we take that theologically and we go, we are perfect in Christ. Absolutely. But Jesus isn't asking you for your spiritual standing. He's asking you how you're looking for your neighbor. And then you go, okay, I got some work to do. Good! That's great! That's wonderful! That's excellent! Yes! Yes! Land on I've got work to do. Land there. That's great. Because if you land there, you've got work to do with Jesus inside of you. You go, God, let's go love somebody today. Put me in the path of someone today. Let's go present this to the world. It's because these instructions show us how God acts. We're followers of Jesus. In Jesus, we see God. You want to know what God looks like? Watch Jesus. You want to know how God acts? Listen to Jesus. Listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you how this thing ends, all right? Because it could be a while before we get through the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you how the sermon ends. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. I'm going to close right here. Therefore, listen to how Jesus closes this message. Whoever hears these sayings and does them, I consider that guy a wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and beat on the house, it doesn't fall because it was founded on the rock. You can take this sermon, do something with it. He goes, I consider you pretty smart if you do. Because guess what's going to happen? The stuff of chaos in this world, you're going to avoid a bunch of it because you're going to be planted on the rock. Why? Because you're not lying to people and anger people and you're not smacking people back. And all the stuff the Sermon on the Mount has you do, he goes, you'll end up building. Well, what, what about the guy that listens to it and doesn't do it? Well, that's a lot of us. Jesus goes, he's a foolish man, built his house on the sand. The rain descends, the floods come, the winds blow, beat on the house, it falls. Great was his fall. Sand living, right? What do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? We're going to wrestle with this baby. We're going to work on this together over the next however long it takes. Next week, we are going to jump into the Beatitudes. We are going to see this word in the Greek that has been watered down to a word no one ever uses, Beatitudes, and is way closer in the Greek to you lucky dog. <laughs> it really is. It's really close to, it's really close to blissful, and it holds a connotation of the lucky ones. Lucky is the poor in spirit. Lucky are the merciful. Lucky, you lucky dog. <laughs> what, a jo what a journey we're going to have together with the Beatitudes. Let's pray and put this in our hearts tonight. Receive it, as, receive it by faith. Receive it even if you say, I don't understand where I should land on this. That's okay. Land as a wrestler. It's a good spot. Father, thank you for the word tonight. Thank you for what it has said to us. Thank you for what it is doing already within us. And thank you that we get to hold hands with Jesus and walk through this sermon. We're not on the outside looking in and we're not jumping up trying to grab the ring, exhausted, so we just give up trying. No, we're holding your hand and we're watching how you do it and we're gonna fail a lot, but that's okay. Neither do you condemn us. But Father, in this, we get to see what you love like, what you pray like, how you forgive how you're committed, how you're faithful. And if we're honest, we might learn something. Help us right there. In Jesus' name, amen.